As I was considering and praying about what to share this morning, um, I thought about picking up where we had left off in New York, and I'll probably do that at some point out here. Um, whether you guys join us or not, it's a different story. Um, but I felt like the Lord really just laid on my heart this message called New Wine. New Wine. And uh, it will be in Matthew chapter 9, Matthew 9, 9, 17. Um, again, I'm just nervous that you guys can't hear me. So if something goes wrong, just start going crazy. But I think it was the, pa- the late pastor Chuck Smith who said, you shouldn't teach the parables until you've been teaching for the Bible for 10 years. And I'd certainly agree with uh, Pastor Chuck if it was him who said that. I think that's very wise because there's so much in the words of Jesus and in the Bible uh, that we can definitely miss the real intent. I know that I miss the real intent all the time. There's things that as we get on and progress in our walk with the Lord, it begins to reveal about our own lives and about the scripture um, uh, because we can miss it quite easily. We can come to it with the surface knowledge or... um, just an expectation of what it's going to say, or maybe something that we've heard elsewhere that was maybe right or wrong, but maybe, I don't know. So I'm not going to say that this message is the absolute end-all, be-all on this, these areas of scriptures, but I, I believe it's something the Lord's been revealing to me over the past uh, five or six years or so, just something that uh, as we'll get into. Uh, you know, again, I'll admit I haven't studied it in depth. I'm not the expert on it all, but I believe that God is revealing something very powerful, something spiritually delicious, uh, if we can use that wine-tasting metaphor, and something that is both old and new, something that is fresh and well-aged and well-preserved um, all in one. Um, this event that we're going to look at is told in Matthew 9, Mark chapter 2, and Luke chapter 5. Um, But it's interesting, as with all the Gospels, to see who says what and uh, who doesn't say what. So uh, if you want to look at those uh, passages later, uh, that might be an interesting look. Uh, But to get us back then, to put us back in the past, right before this is when Jesus is teaching the house and the house is very crowded. And those four friends bring their paralytic friend there and they can't get in. And so they cut the hole in the roof and they lay Jesus down. They lay him down through the hole to get right in front of Jesus. And what does Jesus do? He says, uh, you know, son, your sins are forgiven you. And then the Pharisees and the others kind of have a problem with that. And so he says, in order to prove that I can to forgive sins, you know, what's easier, forgiving sins or telling them to walk, I'm going to, you know, get up and walk and go home. Um, so we see here that Jesus deals uh, with the importance of this man's spiritual need before his physical need. And, and that would be a great study on its own. But I think that perhaps that's a good lead into where we are. I mean, obviously it is because that's the way the scripture leads it in. But picking up uh, in Matthew 9, chapter, uh, Matthew chapter 9, verse 9, um, and we'll pick it up there. But Lord, again, thank you for your word. Pray, God, that again, you just uh, continue to fill us with your spirit. Thank you so much for Johnny leading worship. We pray that you bless them. Bless Pastor Vin and Rebecca and their family and Sean and Nancy and their family there, Lord. It's a blessing to be a part of this over the internet. As awkward as it is, God, we know that you can move, uh, even if it's just uh, just for a morning and we only catch half of it. I know that, God, if you're speaking, even the half that we catch uh, will be amazing. So, God, fill us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Matthew 9 Uh, verse 9 it says as Jesus passed on from there he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office and he said to him follow me so he arose and followed him you know Matthew's at his desk he's doing his job he's making a lot of money but something tells me that he's not happy 
He's not fulfilled. You know, he's knowing that there has to be something more. You know, if, if only he was praying, maybe he was waiting for God to give him an answer. Maybe he knew the, tr- the spiritual truth and was waiting for a Messiah, and there just wasn't some random person that came out to him. Maybe he knew about Jesus. Maybe he was waiting for the Messiah and didn't know it was him. But when Jesus said, Matthew, follow me, Matthew followed him. You know, those words were intimate, they were personal, but they were also simple and inviting. Um, but I wonder, as we get in the study, what in the world or who in the world are we following? And is it Jesus? And I think sometimes we overcomplicate that and we go, well, I don't know who I'm following or I am following the Lord, but I think there's one simple answer to that. Are you fulfilled where you are today? When you're sitting at your desk, when you're on the job site, when you're in the ministry or you're on the couch right now, maybe when you're alone, maybe you have no physical need, but are you fulfilled? Do you sense that, there, man, there's got to be something more to this life than this? Even as a believer, do you feel that way? But Matthew followed. He got up. He left. And that was it. I don't know what happened to his table. I don't know what happened to the paperwork that was there. I don't know if the Roman government put out a warrant for Matthew's arrest for not collecting taxes anymore. I don't know what happened. But Matthew knew that Jesus was the one worth following. And verse 10 says, Now it happened as Jesus sat at the table in the house, that behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And we know the scripture, the scripture is brought up a lot in many different circles. But just a second here, it says uh, he follows Jesus, and then all of a sudden they go to this feast. So what feast is this? Whose dinner is it? And how did they even get there? Well, Luke and Mark happen to tell us that Matthew, or Levi, was the one who threw the feast. He's the one who told Jesus, you know, he spent big money, he had big guests, no expenses were spared. Uh, we watch these videos on YouTube all the time of uh, uh, old the way they did life in colonial America, and then there's some like connection to another channel. You know, YouTube channels do collaborations with this channel in England, and we watch some things on some English history. And this one was talking about an old English queen ordering thousands of carcasses of pork and boar and cattle uh, for a big party at the castle. They had all these records of this giant feast that she would have. But, you know, feasts were a big deal. Um, and for Matthew, this Jesus is the guest of honor that I believe perhaps he always desired to have in his home. You know, he probably had many parties before, but this was the party. This was the big one uh, that he would uh, spend it all on, I believe. But how did it happen if Matthew was the one following Jesus, that Jesus followed Matthew to his own home? And I bet it's because as, they fo- as he followed, they talked. I bet as they, he's like, oh man, uh, you know, they're walking down the road. Oh, I need to ask Jesus to come to my house today. I need to have a party for this man uh, because I know that he's something special. And to tell everyone that this is the, the one that I've been waiting for, um, the one I've been wanting to follow. Um, and this man was worth everything to this rich young Levi. And you remember the rich young ruler? I believe he could have taken a, a page from Matthew's gospel here. Uh, but instead, that rich young ruler left unfulfilled. Um, But the story of our lives, would it even be written in a book at all? I don't know that any of us would be written in any any history book anywhere. Maybe you guys will, but I think it'll skip right over me. But if it was, would that book even be a part of the gospel? You know, these four guys, these four guys, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, had their names preserved in the Bible forever as a gospel. Um, But you know, all our pages are written in God's, all the pages of our lives are written in God's book. So know that these guys are special, but so are you. And so is the the call of Jesus to follow him in your life. 
But I love that Matthew doesn't boast about inviting Jesus over. You know, he just says the generic in the house. I remember doing the, the what was it? What was it called? The crown financial study. They said one of the first things to like letting go of all these financial things is to start calling them impersonal pronouns. Not my car, but the car. And it, it gives you a little bit more separation when you get that ding at the supermarket. You know, you're not as upset anymore when it's just the car. Um, but God would see that and he would make it clear through the others who's, who's, uh, whose it was. But I think that explains why there's many tax collectors and sinners there. If we remember that uh, tax collectors and sinners were a bit of the outcasts of society or the fringe of society. You know, they were looked down upon. They worked with the Romans. They stole. They dealt with the money. But these were Matthew's friends. These were the guys that Matthew called up uh, on whatever phone they had back then. Uh, that these are the guys who showed up. They knew Jesus was there. Maybe, you know, they were friends of friends. You know how these big parties get, uh, you know, people just start showing up and you don't know where they came from. And we'll see that here now in verse 11. It says, and when the Pharisees saw it, you know, so the Pharisees knew this party was going on and they showed up. Uh, they crashed the party here. And they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Verse 12, when Jesus heard that, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You know, the Pharisees come in and they challenge the disciples. They don't go to Jesus. They come in and they start dealing with his disciples who Matthew just met him. Matthew doesn't have spiritual answers. He just knows what Jesus looks like. But you know what? The disciples don't have to answer. Jesus is the one who answers for them. He immediately comes to the defense of the people that these Pharisees are attacking. And he says... Um, you know, these outcasts, these unscrupulous, these dirty sinners are the ones that Jesus gets in the way of the, the religious folk for. He says he doesn't cover up their need, but he exposes it. These people are sick. These people are hurting and they need a healer. But they need to be called to repentance. He doesn't gloss it over and say, oh, you know, it, it's just how they're made, how I made them. No, that they were in uh, need of, of help and they recognize that. And I believe that will change our perspective on the lost when we see them as sick. See them as those who need a healer and not just the outcasts of society, not those that we should come in and begin to judge if they want to know the spiritual things. But I love what Jesus says here. It's something that I, the Lord was just pressing heavy on me, but it says, but go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I do not come call the righteous, but sinners in repentance. He says to these Pharisees, go and learn what this means. They knew the scripture, but they had no idea what it actually meant. Uh, you know, Jesus is basically saying, leave the party. Go figure it out. Go learn it. You can't stay here and get the answer you need. You can't keep doing what you're doing and be obedient to God. Your obedience is not the type of obedience that God is looking for. He's looking for mercy, the new, and not sacrifice, the old. But could they, would they, were they not trapped in their old ways of doing things? Um, Go ye, and this word he says, go ye, it actually means to lead over, to carry over, to transfer, to pursue the journey on which one has entered, to continue on one's journey, to depart from life, to follow one, I love that, to be, become his adherent, to lead or order one's life. I believe in some way Jesus was saying to the Pharisees, come follow me. But they weren't in the same spiritual place as Matthew, where all he had to say was follow me, and they would follow him. He said, go. Figure this out. And basically, if they figured it out, they would follow him. Because following him was too simple for them to do. Seeing that God would come down and love these sinners was out of their scope of mind. It was outside their crusty container. 
Perhaps he was even telling them to go figure this out as Pharisees. Live it out as a Pharisee. Continue it. There's nothing wrong with the law. Fulfill the law and be merciful. I don't know, but maybe that's too far outside the box uh, of what the Scripture is saying. I don't know. But he says, and to learn, to use by and practice, to be in the habit of accustomed to. You know, that these guys were not accustomed to the real things of God. Their appearance on the outside said that they had it all done, that their whole life was ordered and appeared like God, that they were spiritually perfect, but their hearts and their lives were not even close to being used, used to or accustomed or any idea of what the appearance of God was actually like. When they came in encounter with God incarnate, they didn't recognize it. Although their whole life said that, man, when the, when the Messiah comes, we'll recognize it. They did not recognize it one bit. Verse 14 says, Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? <clears throat> and Jesus said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch pulls away from the garment, and the tear is made worse. Nor do they put new wine into old wineskins, or else the wineskins break, the wine is spilled and the wineskins are ruined, but they put new wine into new wineskins and both are preserved. You know, the Pharisees didn't go right to Jesus. They challenged the disciples. Uh, and now we see the disciples of John come in and they themselves also had a challenge, a spiritual uh, question here. But instead they went right to the Lord with it, seeking his input. I think that perhaps having Jesus' cousin John the Baptist as their... Uh, uh, can you sit back, honey? It's just distracting. Uh, sitting back there, um, having John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, as their uh, teacher really kind of helped get them in the right direction when coming to the Lord of the question. Uh, you know, who you have as your teacher is, is a pretty big deal. Um, but they were seeking his input. Perhaps they were seeking more of an answer and not an argument or a chance of a uh, feeling of superiority like the Pharisees did. But I, I find it interesting that immediately Jesus goes right to a wedding analogy. He goes right to a parable of sorts here. Um, And I believe he does that because he's trying to reveal the deepest spiritual truth to them. The Pharisees bring him a challenge. He gives them a challenge right back. Right back. The disciples of John come and bring him a challenge in a different heart, I believe. And so he again begins to address it in a spiritual way there. Um, again, he's trying to show the relationship between God and man and reveal that truth to them. But they say, why do they fast when the... You know, fast when the bridegroom isn't around. You know, Jesus says, why suffer? Why limit themselves from enjoyment when the time was a time for enjoyment? If the wedding's going on, you're going to eat the cake. You're going to have the party. You're going to do the dancing. Um, if you're there not eating the food, not eating the cake, not dancing, there's probably something wrong. Maybe you don't approve of the wedding. You just kind of showed up. I don't know. But Jesus is saying the wedding is going on. Like the bridegroom's here. We're going to party right now. We don't need to be in this state of suffering, uh, personal suffering um, in this time. And I believe that we fast sometimes when we should really be truly rejoicing. But on the flip side, we also rejoice when we should be fasting. And that's another topic altogether. And uh, um, I'm sure one of you could share uh, something good on that. But I believe that there's a connection here with these three parable or analogies. I don't think it's a stretch because Jesus gives them all three in the response to them. Um, I think there's a, a disconnect between what we think of God and who he really is. A disconnect between how we are behaving and how we should be behaving. And that's in all things. 
and a disconnect between how we view people and how God views people. And I'm sure about there's a million other facets that we could spend a lifetime mining out of this. But for today's sake, I think that this is what we're going to focus on. He goes from this wedding analogy to then the unshrunk cloth, patching a garment. And when I hear this, there's some, you know, this is something weird in my psyche. But all I can think about is when I was in the second grade, I used to wear a lot of sweatpants. My mom would dress me. I'd wear sweatpants and sweatshirts. And I would get holes in these. As any little boy does, you run around, you jump, you land on your knees. Somehow it doesn't hurt when you're little. But, you know, if you were to do it now, you'd be in the emergency room. But after getting made fun of a few times for the patches on my knees, I, I don't really want, wear sweatpants anymore. I haven't worn sweatpants probably, I think I tried once, I got a pair at Walmart, uh, but I haven't worn them since the second grade. For whatever was said to me, it scarred me for life and turned me away from sweatpants for everything because of these patches that were in the garment. And I don't know that we didn't have money then. You know, I, I think we, we did. And there was times later when we didn't have much uh, in our family. Uh, but I think at that time, my mom could afford a new pair of sweatpants, but I won't hold it against her because there was so much going on in our lives at that time. But what Jesus is saying about a patch is like, if this, if this new cloth has not been shrunk, you know, they didn't have pre-shrunk cotton or nylon or any of these fabrics today that don't shrink like, uh, you know, natural fabrics do when you wash them. He says, if you put on this new patch onto an old garment, it, eventually this new patch is going to shrink and it's just going to rip the garment and the tear is made worse. So what you did to try and fix things actually made things worse. And how often is that in life? When something goes wrong, we try and fix it. We try and patch it up with a gift or with uh, being extra friendly or whatever it is we do. We throw money at it, whatever it is. But in the end, it just the relationship gets worse or the situation at work or personalized. It just it doesn't get fixed. It needs to be made new. And he goes on, he says, um, uh, nor do they put new wine in old wineskins. And I'm not a drinker anymore. I used to be. Before I knew the Lord, before Jesus saved me, um, and, and if he hadn't healed me and I hadn't been dead by today, um, I'd still be an alcoholic, a drug addict, an abuser, and who knows uh, what else. But as a believer now, you know, this is a desire that God took away from me. As soon as I, when I, I got saved, it was just something that God took away from me. It wasn't a struggle anymore, praise the Lord, but it just no desire for it anymore. But especially as a believer and being called to pastor, I know that alcohol is not for me, just because, not just because I don't necessarily have the desire for it like I used to. Um, you know, sometimes, to be honest with you, desire may come. You know, there's been times in my life when I joke with Ashley, hey, you want to go get a beer? You know, but not really wanting to, just thinking about the entertainment value of it. But to be honest, when I really think about it, it's not entertaining, and even talking about it now makes me a little sick to my stomach. And honestly, that comes when, if I haven't been spending time at the heavenly dispensary, and to be honest, I think that the Bible probably and does teach, in my opinion, that alcohol is not for any Christian, and we are all kings and priests in the Bible. The Bible says we're kings and priests, and the Bible also says that kings and priests are not to, to drink strong drink and not to drink. Um, you know, and Paul gives Timothy an excuse there. Hey, I'm Timothy. Uh, is that my excuse? Uh, to drink when his stomach is bothering him. You know, if you're a believer and you drink, I'm, I don't hold it against you. You know, that's, I, I'm not going to say that you're in sin. The Bible, you know, there's more important things out there. Uh, that's between the groom and you, um, but I'm not about to put that burden on you. I'm just sharing with you what I believe the Bible teaches. And, you know, I won't talk about it much unless it comes up in Scripture. Uh, I'm around a lot of unbelievers at work. I was around more. Now, I, you know, I'm not around unbelievers at work now because these I work over there in that room over there, and these are the people I'm around all day. But I do go back to the office, and I do enjoy my time in the office. 
And there's not believers there that, you know, that I know of. And they drink, you know, on Fridays, four o'clock, whoop, the announcement comes over the office. The closet is open and everyone gets up from the desk and runs and go get, get some beer or other drink and wine. And they, you know, hang around and drink and I'll go get my free soda. You know, I'm not going to pass up on free soda. You know me. Uh, but I hang out with them. I love that. I don't bring condemnation on them. I don't say, you know what? I don't drink. I'm not going to go shit with you. Or we have the Christmas party. Oh, I'm sorry. Holiday party uh, in December that I'll be flying back for. And I enjoy that. There's a time to hang out with them when they're drinking, you know, and, and I get to just love on them and at times share with them different things just to be around them and, and be there for them. Uh, but as with any party that happens with alcohol or other things of that nature, there's a point at which it just flips and it turns into something else where people have just been drinking for a time period and now they've drunk well and, you know, you could give them, you know, really lousy stuff and they'd still be happy. Uh, and in that time I say my goodbyes and uh, I go and find myself someplace else, you know, when there's, you know, the opportunity door is closed there. But that being said, because of all the trouble with wine in the world in our own lives, I think that the church, as the church, we stray away from these accounts and ultimately the words of our Lord Jesus when they include the word wine. We have all these debates. Well, what percentage of wine was it? And back then they didn't have, you know, we just, we get all caught up in these things because of all the problem that there is with alcohol in our world and really in our own lives at times. You know, we love the thought of communion. I believe we take it wholeheartedly and purely with grape juice. I'm not advocating otherwise. If you take it with wine, hey, that's fine. It's between you and the Lord. But, you know, I, I wonder why cause someone else to, sum, to stumble. You know, the juice is fresh. And if we go back to Latin, the word wine is actually the word for grapes, uh, venom. Uh, my Latin teacher in high school would be proud of me, even though I pretty much failed that class. But when we think of wine, we're so tainted by the uses of it and the perception of it and our aversion to it personally, maybe. We tend not to meditate on what the word of God is saying to us by it. Um, let's turn to John chapter 2, uh, verses 1 through 11. I'll read that real quick. John 2, 1 through 11. Help if I can find it. Okay, here we go. And you guys all know this, uh, this story very well, I bet. It says, on the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding, and they ran out of wine. And the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Je I don't know how she said it, but that's how I kind of picture it. Jesus said to her, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour is not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were set there six water pots of stone, according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. And Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. And when the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, he did not know where it had come from. But the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called to the bridegroom and he said to him, Every man at the beginning sets out the good wine, and when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior. You have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana and, uh, of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Now, I know this story isn't about new wine. The word is different. The word here is new. Uh, I mean, the word here is good, and the word here in, in, uh, in Matthew is, uh, is new. So it's not like it's the same word and just translated differently. And I, I know it's not about new wine in the strictest sense, but think about this. The party ran out, and Jesus makes good wine, and the good wine is, well, new wine. They didn't have this wine before. And I know that's a little bit of a stretch, but bear with me here. 
And I think this, because I think the story at large helps tell the bigger picture here. You know, whenever we look at scripture, we also want to look at scripture. You could do a search on Blue Letter Bible for new wine, and I was shocked at how much this phrase showed up uh, in the Bible. Uh, it would be interesting to look at that. But verse 4, and you think of all moms and their aspirations and, and projections on their children. You know, I, I know Mary loved Jesus, and she knew who he was, and she couldn't wait for him to be revealed and for people to come to faith in her son, the Son of God. You know, only with the love of a mother. Jesus, they don't have any wine. I, I know this is no problem for you. Can you go do this? You know, I don't know what, what her motives were, if they were good or if they were just, oh, you know, this is an embarrassing moment. Help out. I know you can. Um, but he says to her, my time has not yet come. You know, the need for wine and the pressure to reveal himself coming uh, from his mom who knew and believed who he was, um, you know, that there was this pressure there. And I think that this connection here between new wine and good wine and Jesus revealing uh, of himself uh, is a little bit uncanny. You know, Matthew 26, uh, 26 to 30 says, And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup and he gave thanks and he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine, uh, from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. You know, the communion cup, the red wine representing his blood about to be spilled for the new covenant, the cup of the new covenant we would talk about. In Hebrews 10, uh, you can read uh, the chunk of it later for yourself if you want, but I'm going to read uh, verse 4, 16 to 17 and 19 and 20. And it says, uh, the writer says, or Paul, if you're of that persuasion, says, For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts, and their minds I will write them. And he adds, Their sins and their lawless deeds will, I will remember no more. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us, through the veil that is his flesh. Um, you know, Jesus says that he's not going to drink from this cup until we're all in the kingdom with him again. That's interesting that he's waiting to have that new wine in heaven with, with us. But it's a new covenant because the old one couldn't be patched. There was no amendment to the old constitution that would usher in the kingdom of God. It had to be a new covenant. It, it was just a, an old was just a picture, as the Bible says, a shadow of the heavenly things, of the things that come, a temporal picture of an eternal reality. And Paul tells us that it was a new and living way. We know Jesus says that I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. But that there was a new and living way, that this way of the law, this way of sacrifice, was a way of death. You were constantly reminded of death. And we need to be reminded of death with our sin and communion. That's sort of the point of communion. What do you need? Okay. You sit on the couch. Um, but it was a new and living way. And that was the only way that was going to work. The way the Pharisees wasn't going to work. The confusion of uh, the disciples of John uh, about which way to go and what they should be doing because they wanted to earnestly obey Jesus. And yet they're like, well, we're fasting and these guys aren't fasting. So how do we reconcile these two different walks in our faith? Because disciples of John believed in God. Disciples of Jesus believed in God, and I believe they both were having the right heart toward it, but their practices were different. They were acting different. And I love here, it says that it will put his law into their hearts and minds, I will write them. You know, Joel 2, 19 through 29 
and it says, uh, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but look it, look it up later. I'm going to, um, he talks about the new wine. Let me, uh, catch it here. You know, that, that verse about, uh, restoring the, the things that the locusts have, have eaten. Um, and it will come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. Also on my men servants and on my maid servants. I will pour out my spirit on those days. And he talks earlier about new wine in that, which I thought was interesting. Um, but you know, these are the last days. And I'm sure you know that. But do you believe it? You know, you read the news. Uh, there's a, Alistair Begg always talks about having... Uh, one foot in the Bible and one foot in the news that we need to be in both because we need to know what time we're living in. Or are we too drunk on other things to realize how late in the party it is? You know, it is the last days. It is the end. And Jesus says to look up because the day of your redemption draws near. But God is working and God is moving. And I believe he's pouring out his spirit on his sons and daughters. Why do I believe? Because he says that's what he's going to do, especially in the last days. Not that we have a better portion or that we've got some new revelation, but he's giving vision because he's not done yet and time is short and he wants to get as many people into heaven as he can. But I believe there's a big problem. There's rejoicing going on when fasting should happen. There's fasting going on when rejoicing and worship should be done. There's old wine and old wineskins that cannot receive this new wine, this new vision. There are attempts to patch the old wineskins, attempts, attempts excuse me, to bring unity, but really there can't be any unity. Um, you know, I'm all for the unity, and that's part of this message, but we can't ignore heresy. We can't ignore um, the, the essentials. But there's also a problem of us constantly picking on each other and caring too much about our own kingdoms, either personally or denominations. But as I've said before, a friend, you know, God's word says enough in correction to the church that I, don't, that I don't need to. I just need to be the church. I just need to love the church because the church is me. The church is you. The church are those who believe in Jesus, whether we all believe it exactly the same way or not. Now, again, I'm not saying to, that the Mormons are believers or that necessary Catholicism is, is not a cult. But, man, we need, to, we need to love on those who maybe go to a, a different church than us. Or maybe you go to a different denomination than us. And here's where it gets real for me. And maybe I've shared a little bit of this with you before, but please bear with me, and I hope you can hear my heart in it. But I knew that God was calling us out five or six years ago from these passages of Scripture. You know, I was praying about a bunch of things, and um, the Lord just, just talking about, gave me a word about new wine and new wineskins. And I knew around that time, that's when God began to call us to go to Maryland. But deep down, I knew it was something more. But I couldn't quite yet come to grips with it yet. I knew God wasn't done with the people yet of the church uh, in New York or the people in New York. Um, but even, even coming back, we couldn't say something was specifically wrong. But just that we would do things completely different. You know, God had begun to do a work in our lives, had begun to minister to us things while we were in Maryland. And just began to see things differently, things that I hadn't seen. Even, even from now until a year ago to a couple of years ago, I look at the way I walked and the way I lived my life as a Christian. And I, I don't know that you could look and say necessarily anything was, was bad other than the things that I did wrong. But as far as my outlook on the scriptures and what I believed, 
But man, like we talked about those parables, you kind of, it begins to, to sink deeper. You begin to think about it uh, a little more rationally sometimes, or maybe call into question and walk circumspectly. Well, how am I treating people? What are my views? What are my goals? What are my ambitions? And were they the right ones? Maybe what I was going about looked like the right thing on the outside, and maybe I even thought it was. Maybe I was taught it was. But as I read the Bible more and spend more time with the Lord, and I'm not saying that, you know, I'm Moses up there and my face is glowing, but I just realized I need to start walking a little bit differently, talking a little bit differently. Because if I'm going to be honest about my faith and honest to what the Lord has shown me, I have to follow him. I have, if he shows me something, I have to follow him, even if it looks a little different than maybe I'm used to. But as we were in Maryland and things happened back in New York and we began to go back and minister and be in Maryland and minister, and there's a whole season there with that, but I, things began to be revealed to me in different people and throughout the de- denomination, things began to happen that just really began to, to break the facade and the idolatry that in my heart that I had for it. Um, and even in myself, the things, these are the things that began to be revealed in myself too. I struggle with things at times. I, I remember, Lord, there are times, I remember just thinking one day, like, man, if this is Christianity, if this is the people that are your leaders, are the people that I respect and look up to, and this is what's going on behind closed doors, man, I don't know. I can't, I can't go on this. I've shared with my friend. If God wasn't the way, the truth, or the life, the way things happened, whether I did wrong or was treated wrong or whether things were going on that were just heartbreaking, man, I see why people turn back. I see why people give up. But we can't follow people. And I believe that there's this cult of personality, as, as it's been said, where we look to people too much. I know I do. And God ministered to me a couple years ago that everyone in my life was going to hurt me. And I don't mean to say that if you guys are in my life that you've hurt me and come seek repentance. I'm not saying that at all, but I'm saying that God had to work through me, like I talked, shared before, if you could hear it before the message about my dad when I was little, that he had to allow all these people to hurt me for me to begin to be able to trust him as much as I need to. And I'm not saying I, I've reached that level yet. I need to trust him more and more. But man, sometimes God allows people to hurt us. Situations that happen that are so hard and so hurtful and so perplexing that we can't figure them out, that all we can do is say, God, I can't figure it out. But all I know is that you're the way, the truth, and the life. And where else can I go, Lord? Where else can I go but follow you, as the disciples have said? And I think that that needs to be our walk of faith. I think that, sadly, God's going to have to allow that happen to a lot uh, to the church in America. That's all I know of. Because I don't know that we trust him implicitly. I believe we put the church first or we put good things first, but they're not the best things. In order to live my faith out to the fullest... I need to listen to what he's saying and be obedient to what he's saying and follow him where he's going. I believe he's giving us all dreams, visions, and revealing to his heart, uh, revealing his heart to us in the rejoicing of the new wine. But the old wineskin would be ruined if we stayed. This wine that God is pouring out on all of us, if we stay the way we were and don't allow him to change us, that wine's going to get spilled. We're going to get broken. Other people are going to get broken. There's going to be a tearing. But if we allow God to make us into those new wineskins, that new wine can be retained. The old wine remains old wine and good wine, and the new wine is new wine and good. And there doesn't have to be this unnecessary destruction. One is better than the other, or different than the other, or one 
We need to, to rip and tear and bite and devour and, and consume each other. Because the thing is, is the new wine is not new wine. It's not a new revelation. It's not an emergent doctrine. It's just the old revealed again. I think that's something else that Chuck Smith would minister, had ministered about. But it's this good wine made from the water of the word. And because we've gotten so old and crusty and stuck in our ways and the ways that it's always been done, we haven't received it yet. It tastes new to us. It tastes fresh to us. But it's been there in front of us the entire time. Like I've shared a, a bunch of times in our uh, study through Genesis, God and man, sometimes we read this book and we think of these people or the disciples as these holier-than-thou people, these saints on the wall. And yes, they are saints, and God did a, ma a massive work in them. But when you look at the Scripture and slow down and take it for what it says, you go, these people are more messed up than I thought and, and, and maybe almost as messed up as me. And yet God is faithful to them minister to them because God is moving in all of his people no matter the denomination as long as it's actually the church and not a, a fake church uh, they just claim the church uh, again obviously uh, aside from those who are heretical not truly the body but what did Jesus say he talked about a mustard seed this little seed that would grow should grow into a bush grows into this big nasty tree with a million branches you know all the leaves have been falling off and and Jake said the trees look silly and I have to wonder if God would say this tree looks silly there's all these different branches, these denominations, these splits. There's birds of the air that are nested, things that are there that are just not supposed to be there. But it's what it's become. And I don't know that we're going to be able to fix it. We're not going to be able to take all these branches and put them back into one. I know that in heaven, it's not going to matter anymore. Jesus says that, you know, what is Christ? Is Christ Paul says, is Christ divided? No, he's not. So these branches are just because we've adhered to different crustiness or different good things sometimes. And, and some division is good division. Don't get me wrong. But we are the body. Why are we divided? Why are we fighting? Why are we, like I said, biting and devouring one another, claiming the best spots of the love feasts, forgetting that, we, forgetting that we are one body and one spirit, one God and Father of all? And I believe, you know, I've heard it in every, almost every person I've spoken to over the past couple of years and this thing has come up. I think we all felt like Matthew in some sense, even as believers, where we've been doing our job, our ministry, our lives in one way, prescribed all this time. Things have been going on. It doesn't always make sense, or it does make sense. But we sense that God wants to do something, that God is doing something. And, you know, we all want revival, but why aren't we seeing it? We all just keep looking back to the 60s, and that was a great time. What about today? That's 60 years later. It's almost 2020, guys. It's, we're old. It's the future. God's coming back any minute. The world is ready for the Antichrist. All that has to happen is the Holy Spirit says, okay, let's get out of here. And I think as the trick of the enemy always works, wants to keep us down, we think we're the only ones thinking this way. That we're the only, man, this can't be a vision of God because no one else is saying anything about it. No one else is doing anything about it. And I think sometimes we're afraid to talk about it. Like it's wrong to consider if we're even going about it in the right ways. Like it's wrong to consider to step back. I remember a, a friend of mine, a pastor, they were doing so much to his church. He said, we need to step back and consider and do nothing and just spend time with the Lord. And then as the Lord sees fit, he'll begin to re-add these ministries. And I think sometimes we're called into question if we, if we even try and say that, hey, let's just spend time with Jesus. 
maybe we don't need to do youth group this week. Maybe we don't need to do, you know, whatever ministry it is. Let's just spend time with the Lord. His, his house is what? A house of prayer, right? We see, we hear, we feel, and we know God is calling, but it seems like it's outside of the wineskin we're used to. It's a different direction, a new direction, a word that we haven't received before necessarily personally. Maybe it's been in the scripture when we read it, but it hasn't really hit us that way before. But it's made new. And that's, it's a good wine, and we want to taste it, and we want to drink it, but for some reason, we feel like it's forbidden. Jesus says in John 13, 34, 35, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And by this, all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. But you know what? That doesn't happen just by a program. That doesn't happen just by setting up service times or uh, by the way it's always been done. And not that God doesn't use those things. And not that those things aren't important for a structured church and a church in order and be able to reach people and do ministry effectively. That's not what I'm saying. But I think perhaps the guy in the pulpit or the flashy worship band selling out concerts is not the only way that God is moving. And maybe we don't fit into those molds. But we fit into the Bible and we want to fit into Jesus more. And we think, oh, God's not using us because we don't have a million followers on Facebook Gram or whatever. And not that those people aren't genuine. Not that, you know, they don't love Jesus and God isn't using them. There are brothers and sisters in the church. But man, the church is a body, right? One, one part is going to look like this. Another part's going to look like this and act like this and behave like this. But they're all moving lockstep, allowing Jesus to continue to walk on the earth. We have a purpose from God. And we cannot look to others to define our ministry, our calling. We can look to them to help us along and to direct us and give us advice. But ultimately, it's Jesus who has a calling on your life, Matthew. A calling on your life, Pharisees. A calling on your life, disciples. A calling on your life, sinners and tax collectors. We cannot look to the ways of the church and the way it's operated in America in the 50s and 60s and think that's going to work today. It's not. Because, well, something of that didn't work because look at the state of the church today. But besides that, the times are different. The Bible is still just as applicable, but the times are different. Just read the news. And if you don't think the times are different from even 15, 20 years ago when you and I were in high school, it's vastly different. You know, I saw something the other day about a baptismal slide. I think it was a joke, and I hope it was. But the times we live in, I'm not necessarily convinced it's a joke that a church wouldn't have a slide into the baptismal. There's this song that says, I need a heart change. I need a heart change. Penetrate the depths of my soul. I need the real thing, not the American dream, of choosing the world and still having you. I need a heart change to see the truth, a seeker and servant heart change. And not that the American dream is wrong. I love America. I have flags. I, you know, I vote. I you know, these things are important to me uh, to be a good citizen, Romans 13. Um, you know, but it's not my end-all game in life is to be president. I pray for the president. I pray for the government. I think America has been blessed for so long. I don't know that America is going to be standing much longer given how divided it is, uh, which is why you should come to Montana because when it falls, this will be a good place to be. Uh, <laughs> half joking. Uh, but sincerely, I would love to have a house. I would love to have some fields, some animals, to have fun riding the ATV with the kids. You know, we went out and did some fall stuff with them the other day. 
And I know that God will give me things like that in a way if, if it's right in his time. Uh, because it's healthy to have a family. The Bible says to aspire to lead a quiet life. Don't aspire to be famous. Aspire to have that quiet life. They may work hard with your hands and have a family and take care of those in need. And I desire that. But that's not my chief desire. I know that God has a call in my life. If, if I could just do that, and I've wanted to this past summer, you know, the, man, so many hard things have gone on. Like, can I just go rake leaves until the rapture? But I can't escape the call. Because we can't let these things be our guide. And I believe that that's what we've done is let them be our guide. You know, we, we can't just try and stay relevant or emerge from whatever we're trying to soak into as these fads come and go because it's not the way God operates. It's not the way we see it operating in the scriptures. Having a job is great, but maybe God is calling you to quit your job and go be a missionary in Cambodia. Maybe he's calling you to grow a beard. Yeah, right? That's a good idea, right? To put on camel's clothes and eat locusts and honey in the wilderness. Or maybe not, because that was the call on John the Baptist's life, and we don't see other guys doing that. But what I'm saying here, and I hope you can hear the heart of the Lord here as we're coming to a close, is that what he's calling us, all of us to, is bigger than all we can ever ask, seek, or imagine. It is leaving our country and becoming a nation. It's sending the sheep one day, slaying the giant the next, and becoming the king of Israel, whose throne God looks forward to sitting on the day after. Can you imagine that? God makes you a king, and then he says to you, I can't wait to sit on the throne of you, Johnny, or Vin, or Rebecca, or Sean, or Nancy. It's lying on our side for half a year eating food cooked on cow dung, even though God told you to use human feces to cook your food, but you, being too religious and not having a strong enough stomach for it, said, Lord, please just let it be animal, animal dung, please. And proclaiming a message of repentance just by laying there or running around unclothed. That can't be God telling me to do that. Well, look through the scripture and see how many things that you would say don't line up to. Well, that can't be God doing it. It's standing outside the temple and telling everyone that the system is corrupt and that they're corrupt and invaders are coming. And if you don't repent, you're going to be taken captive. But you couldn't give that message on the inside of the temple because they would never hear it and they would never allow you to give it there. It's crying out to God that you're too young and yet he's called you to be a prophet to the nations. It's persecuting believers, killing them and arresting them one day, and the next discipling them, rescuing them, and rescuing people on a boat about to sink, about the, and then writing about the heart of God and being arrested for God for the rest of your life. It's like being a little boy in a place where the old men aren't hearing God, where the young men who are supposed to be serving God are sinning and abusing their power, and you're the one hearing from God in the middle of the night. These things are what the scripture says, guys, and I know you know that. It says it in the old, and it says it in the new. The story's the same. The juice is the same. My friend and my boss at work, he says, you know, the saying of his, um, we got to see if the juice is worth the squeeze. And I wonder, is the wine worth the squeeze in our life? That if God is not allowing our lives to be squeezed for a reason, that that new wine might flow out, that we might leave the old wineskin and enter into the new wineskin. You know, but somehow we've forgotten him. Somehow we've boxed God back up into a bookstore, a sanctuary, or a trunk and treat night. And I'm not saying God doesn't use those things or that I'm against them or wouldn't use them. But when we consider the cross and everything the Lord went through and what he prayed the night before in Luke twenty-two thirty-nine. 39, 
He said, Father, if it's your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. What God was calling Jesus to do was completely be poured out. And Jesus didn't want to drink from that cup, and yet he's going to drink from it in heaven. Unless he went through that, he would not be able to drink in heaven, and we would not be able to drink in heaven. You know, the time is short, and there's not much left on the clock at the age of grace before the seven years of the tribulation come to an end. You know, it's like the party is almost over. We've been living in the age of grace. We can do whatever we want, say whatever we want, spend time with the Lord, not spend time with the Lord, and God doesn't, doesn't judge us equally, but keeps pouring out his grace upon grace. But how can we keep living in the old way that has a name on it, that it's alive, but it's not, like in Revelation 3. But we must be the church. And as we come to a close, let's look back at the wedding feast of Cana. In verse 6, it says, according to the manner of the purification of the Jews, I think it's interesting that this good wine, this new wine, gets put into vessels needed for the Jewish purification rite. I think that'll preach if you take the time with that. But the master, uh, the master says, you've kept the good wine until now. You know, why didn't you give this in the beginning when we weren't all out of our, you know, when we were all sober and we could all enjoy the taste of it. And now we've drunk it so much that, man, we can taste it, but we can't enjoy it because we don't have all our faculties like we did before. Why did you save this till now? And in a sense, the wedding feast is just about over. I'm not saying this is predispensational, you know, whatever those theological words are. We're going to be in a feast in heaven. What I'm saying is that this age of grace is just about over. At the very end, everyone has well drunk and doesn't realize that they're out of wine yet. We keep going on like the party's going to carry on forever and that we're okay. But I think the leaders know that something is up. Hey, we're out of wine. I remember my wedding, we ran out of soda and my poor father-in-law probably lost, you know, half his hair because we ran out of soda and he had to go out and get more. But we had more soda. I didn't know. I was, the wedding feast was a blur to me. But that good wine is made from filling up the purification pots with water at the instruction of Jesus. You know, that there's this prescribed way had to be filled up with the water of God. As we look at it and we read it, this good wine comes out of it. This good drink that, man, we didn't know it was there before. But it's still there. It was there in front of us the whole time. And there is new wine for us as believers, and it is the good wine. If you're thirsty today, if you've been drinking the same old drink, there's good wine ready for you. If you've been coming to this fountain and not sure what to make of it anymore, not one jot or tittle is going to pass away because it's been carefully preserved in the jar of the scriptures for us. We have to allow God to make us ready to receive it, though, because, again, if we remain in those old wineskins, we will burst. We will be spilled and we will be wasted. So keep drinking from the old, but receive the new. And keep looking for the new, but make sure that it's good and that it's made from the old. It's the right grapes. It's the right vintage. Be willing to go and find out, like Jesus said to the Pharisees, that God desires mercy and not sacrifice. Be the church. Allow God to heal you and heal others. But I think it's going to come in a way that you don't expect and, and they don't expect. It's not going to fit into this mold that we've even made it. How often does it even talk about like uh, even moving out here, moving other places, or just doing things in life? We, God always gives a vision, but somehow it always plays out. The goal end goal is the same, and the vision is met, but the way we think it's going to play out is kind of different. I remember being a kid and my brother telling me about his uh, condominium or his apartment that he had, and I had this picture in my mind by what he was describing it. And then when I went to visit him, 
it was totally different. Yeah, it had the, the window in the same place I thought. It had the kitchen in the same place I thought, but it was carried out totally different, and it was better than I could imagine because it was where my brother lived. But you may have to do things outside of the way others think you should. And guaranteed, if it's God moving, you know, again, like I said, it's going to happen in those ways that are unexpected. You may have the vision, the dream, but when it comes in reality, again, it's going to happen in the ways that you don't plan. Uh, you didn't necessarily purpose. Uh, like today, uh, you know, Johnny and I have been talking about a video chat, and then it blossomed into this thing, and hopefully something came out of it. But it'll be poured out, and you'll be poured out. It'll be like the wedding feast at Cana. People will believe God, and His glory will be made known. And I believe it's in Luke that he says that, uh, you know, that the, the one who drinks the old wine can't drink the new because he says that the old is, is better. I think we should read that on our own and consider it um, because the old is better. It's better to go back to the scriptures than to try and come up with something new. It's better to, to do things the way, in a sense, they've always been done. But let's be sure that that's the way that they've been done. Not just the way we've, they've told us it's been done or the way that we've practiced it for 100 years. Maybe we were off a little bit. And to always consider, man, always go back to that fountain and receive. So God, uh, Lord, I pray that you would uh, continue to pour out your spirit on your sons and daughters in these last days. That God, we would be ready to receive from you and go where you have us go and do what you have us do. God, if we're discouraged, help us, God. If we're rejoicing, help us to continue to rejoice. But God, if we need to mourn help us mourn and if we need to rejoice instead of uh, mourning let us rejoice but god whatever it is god may it be you help us follow you just get up and simply follow you like matthew did and god would you feed us and give us that wine as uh, help us to take communion perhaps with our families this week or our other friends in the church uh, we just ask for your grace on today thank you for your word we pray you would come back soon in jesus name